Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with William Hoy, ACE, and David Heinz. William Hoy got into the editor's seat on feature films back in the 1980s. One of his first major feature films was Dances with Wolves. Since then, he's edited a string of box office and critically acclaimed hit films, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Patriot Games, Seven, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Bone Collector, Dawn of the Dead, Fantastic Four, 300, Watchmen, and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I'd previously interviewed William for War on the Planet of the Apes. Editor David Heinz previously worked with William as the VFX editor on both War for the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. He also held that position on The Jungle Book. His other editing credits include numerous feature films and TV shows. Today we're discussing The Call of the Wild, which, like the ape movies, is a blend of live-action photography and CGI. David was actually on the film as an editor for an entire year before production began cutting previs. What are some of the difficulties of dealing with characters that are so important to the story that are CGI-based? In comparison to a picture like Apes, for instance, uh, the two ape movies, we had motion capture actors, actors that were acting emotionally, and I actually edited those for performances. I noticed that a lot of reviews are crediting Terry Notary for being Buck the dog, not to take anything away from Terry, he's he's great uh, motion capture actor, but in actuality, we didn't use very much of the actions other than the eye lines and his speed of running and and things like that. So when it came to the acting itself, that was directed by our director, Chris Sanders, and the animation director based at MPC in Montreal. So the difficulty is that I wasn't actually cutting a performance. So we had pre-vis and we had post-vis, but that is not an indication of what ultimately is going to be or even timing-wise temporarily what it's going to be. So that was a very difficult part. So as editors, we can actually try to help fill in those moments and say, you know, we've edited the scene and we want these things to happen or we want him to be emotionally set here at this moment. So it's it's quite different. Uh, I'd rather like cutting performances. <laughs> I worked on um, The Jungle Book for a while, and uh, in that film, at least they had the audio recordings from the actors. So with Apes, we had the motion capture performances to cut with. With Jungle Book, we at least had the audio to sort of make a radio play first. And this film, like Bill said, we had none of that. We did have Terry on set that we could cut in, but it was really just a placeholder for time being. So we didn't really get the dailies back for Buck until very, very late in the process. Did you guys have to edit a lot of that like an animated film? How much of a a hybrid were you guys working with between animated and live action? I I have an idea of what animation films are like now. (laughs) (laughs) 
But, uh, you know, I, I heard from friends who are animation editors and there's a certain process to it. And it, it certainly felt that way because, you know, each time a new version came in, then we would have to continue to make changes based on the timing of the animation that came in, based on the emotion that it had. You know, sometimes we had to rework scenes around that. So we were constantly changing the picture. And so, which meant we were changing the sound effects and the intent of a scene. So it was just an ongoing process. The picture continued to evolve through the in, entire post-production. You mentioned a liking to edit uh, performance. That drives a lot of when you make a cut, you know, when an eye goes from one person to another, for example. How were you guys determining that kind of stuff? Because I noticed stuff like with the dog's eyes, there would be a little glint or a moment or a twitch. And, and you guys couldn't have been seeing that until very late in the process. It was very much an ongoing process, meaning um, we are cutting to the dog for a, and at first we're using a shot of Terry, then maybe we're using a storyboard, and then sometime later we're using a bit of previs or postvis. But it's not until we start getting the animation dailies back from MPC and the animators up in Montreal that we're then having to go in and sort of recut. So we end up recutting these scenes with all these different iterations of the shots many, many different times. So we would spend long stretches of our days, particularly towards the end of post, in VFX reviews. And then after those VFX reviews, we'd go right back to the cutting room and have to revise uh, some scenes based around new shots that have just come in. When you say the glint in the dog's eye and, and when they turn and the timing of that, you know, we're within a certain amount of frames, but we don't know within a turn, but we don't know about the glint or when the actual sled is going to flash by, the trail of snow is going to be CG. So all of that, we then have to set that particular timing at the very end. We have an, an idea of that going in because in, in, in the certain iterations, we, we talk about it with MPC online. So we expect to see that at some point. And so we, we actually have to sit through all these visual effects meetings, uh, reviews, and, and watch all the different iterations of these uh, visual effects coming in. So that takes a lot of time away from the cutting room too. So we have to do that and then go back to the cutting room. So it, it makes for a long day usually. <laughs> Talk to me just about the process of what dailies looks like on a film that has so much animation, are you using, like you said, previs? Are you using storyboards when when you're having to cut to something that doesn't exist in the shot dailies? Well, David had started on the picture quite a while before I did, and he came on to edit the previs itself. So while I was looking with David that, well, this is going to be really easy. I mean, he started the picture editing the previs together, and uh, the studio spent a lot of money on the previous, so I jokingly said, this is going to be the easiest job I've had because I'm just going to come in. They're going to shoot in production, physical production. They'll shoot these shots, and we'll just drop them in. And, you know, I'll go home at 5. This sounds great to me. Of course, nowhere close to being the truth. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to be a part of the process for nearly a year before we filmed anything. Um, the reason being is, uh, whereas 
on a typical film, you might do previs for a handful of sequences, maybe a large action sequence or something like that. On this film, we did previs for almost every scene in the movie. Um, they wanted to very meticulously plan out where Buck would be in any given moment. And then some of the later scenes that are fully CG, we did pretty extensive previs on all of that. So yeah, as we were cutting the film together, if there was ever something that wasn't captured with live action photography, we were cutting in previs as placeholders quite often. And for um, some of the later sequences that are entirely CG, we had really no real dailies to work with except for previs and postvis. When it came to actually editing the the picture, we have dailies and obviously we have the human actors and we want to get the best out of our human actors and then our butt fits in with that story, then we slot those moments in. If we had a a background that they shot for that, a plate that they shot where buck would be, or we would have to make it up or it would have to be a virtual background but there are scenes in a picture as you remember that are completely virtual which is uh, buck versus spitz that fight where spitz goes away there was a previous of that but ultimately it became the animation director with our director in in uh, at, at mpc and chris sanders they decided you know there there were certain changes as we went on because now we can see more fully what buck's character was going to be through the picture and so that was inserted in there and spits and so there's a lot of detail that went into that and then the lighting and there was a lot of things that changed within that scene to make it what it finally became having done some animation editing myself i know that there's kind of a process where you're going through kind of, you're looking at some pretty crappy animation, you know, kind of previs style, you know, maybe the quality of a video game, maybe less than that. And is it hard to edit with that because there's so little emotional attachment to it? There's so little, like it's not a human being, you know, with a glint in his eye, you know? I believe that as editors, we can imagine what that might be. But then we... Tell that to a previs, postvis artist, and then it gets on the screen and it doesn't have that emotion, obviously, because it's, you know, it's very detailed work. The biggest difficulty is selling it to people watching it and not knowing what they're looking at. He goes, here's your movie, and show it to the studio. Well, the studio wants to see, well, here's your movie, and they look at it and go, well, I don't feel anything. <laughs> I don't know how many times we have to say this, it's post-vis and it's in a very rudimentary form. It's in the presentation. So I think that's one of the more difficult parts is as an editor, I, if I show it to an audience, if I have the full performances, I can kind of gauge how people in the room are, whether it's a big audience or a small audience, at least have an idea, oh, it's not working there, or oh, they reacted in, in a way that I had could not have predicted. But with post-biz characters that have no emotion, like you say, I don't know. And so am I second guessing myself? So it becomes it becomes difficult because you don't really have a, a defined gauge that where you can say, oh, that's really working. I, I, I look at it, I'm guessing it's working based on past experience, but I have no way of knowing with any amount of certainty that it is. Yeah, that becomes difficult. 
David, uh, talk to me a little bit about the pacing of that with emotions, because you know, if you've got a character like that dog that does, in the end, their final animation is so emotional and, and you relate to the to the dog like you would a pet, but you're looking at post-vis, which isn't like that, does it mean that when you're cutting the post-vis you want to cut quicker because you're like, ah, there's nothing, <laughs> it, this shot's not doing anything for me, let's go to the next shot. Yeah, I think there there is a tendency to try to cut quicker, but Bill and I had conversations about that very thing. I, I think Bill, with his experience, particularly on the Apes movies, was wise to to caution cutting too quick too early. I think it is important, you know, because obviously the the animation is a ton of work and working on every single frame of animation is a ton of work for an entire team of people. So we do try to limit the amount of work they have to do. But that being said, we don't want to sort of paint ourselves into a corner with any given shot where we don't we haven't allotted it enough time to breathe. And, and then the dailies come back and it feels too brief. Um, but just to touch on something you guys were speaking about a minute ago, in terms of all the rudimentary iterations of a shot leading up to the final product, you know, we had to test screen the movie a few times and we had to do that pretty early on with some pretty rough previs and post-vis in there. And I was really struck by the fact that the audience kind of went with it. At the beginning of a screening, any screening, we did a kind of a primer where we said, here's what you're going to see and here's what a finished shot is going to look like. So the audience was kind of ready for that. But it was very encouraging early on that it felt like audiences slipped right into the story and started feeling the emotion of Buck and his story right away, which was encouraging. What would a bin for a scene look like? A normal picture, you would have your dailies and so you would have your bin of of dailies of some physical production. We don't really have a bin for the animation that comes in. You know, we have visual effects editor and they keep track of all that, but we do have on our timeline, the different iterations from the moment that it's as simple as a plate. And then we take the action of say Terry Notary who gives us the eye line. So then we rudimentarily comp that in there that becomes the basis of what it is. And then the, the next iteration will probably be replaced by a post vis that they put a dog in there of some form of dog that's almost two dimensional. And so then, then we continue on from there. So our timeline would be 13, 15 stacks of video tracks. There's many, many more iterations than just those versions that exist on the timeline. But those are the ones that are pertinent to the actual shot itself, as far as timing, as far as acting is concerned. So that becomes more like our bin, if, if you're referring to a bin. It can get complicated with so many video layers, but having done it with all these big visual effects films before and working as a visual effects editor, we were able to keep it all straight. One thing to keep in mind is when you get a bit of animation back from MPC or even a bit of a previs back, we're getting them shot by shot. It's not as if they're delivering dailies for an entire scene. Here's a whole scene's worth of animation dailies. It would be amazing if they were able to do that, but it's just not the way it works. They have to give us shots as the animators finish them. So, so you know, like I was talking earlier about finishing a VFX review and then Bill and I going back down to the cutting room and recutting stuff, we're recutting around you know, one new shot surrounded by three other shots that we're still waiting on new versions of, it becomes a pretty complex process where we're very reliant on the visual effects editors on a film like this. 
when when I was thinking of the what the bin looked like, I was thinking more when you tried to start cutting a scene from scratch, or did you always base it on the previs edit? Because I'm thinking they shot something, and then you have a bunch of previs that's also in the bin for the stuff that's that doesn't exist in the shot. In in the cases where we had some previs, we would slot that previs in there. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, we just had an outright shot missing. So we would just create a banner that said, Buck runs off screen left or looks to his left and, and trots off left to right based on just the surrounding physical action of what we have already on film, then you can kind of look at it and go, okay, this is probably what's going to happen. We describe it, and like I said, everyone has their own concept of a description when I say, it's a close-up of Buck. And he looks, and he gets excited, and then he runs after this thing, and you go, okay, so how big is that close-up? And when he runs off to the left, then is it three-quarter left? If it's straight left? So ideally, we could have some kind of image that we can manipulate and in a very simplistic way and just move that that ball, move that gray dog going exactly the, the position and the way we want him to exit or just to look as simple as looking long enough. He looks past camera for this long and then he takes off. How long is this long? So I can, if I can make some kind of template for you, then it would save a lot of words and a lot of emails back and forth. You know, so <laughs> I, I just do that, you know. And 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 getting back to what David was saying is that, you know, on the eight movies, what I went about it quite methodically in the sense that they devoted a crew to certain scenes. They would concentrate on a certain scene, and when it was almost done, then they would go and concentrate on other scenes. Obviously, when they were getting close to the end, they were, they were trying to finish a lot of things, but that's how it went for the most part, which meant that we were cutting a scene. The dailies would come back on that scene, and we could actually, oh, look, this isn't working. You're looking at the cut, right? When I, I put the new shot in there, it's not really working. And you, you their editors and their their supervisors can look at it and go, oh, no, it's, it's not working. You're right. So we have to adjust that cut in this way. Whereas on this picture... Like David was saying, we get one shot, maybe two shots. So they, they're not even together, so we can't even make that edit itself. So that in itself makes it very difficult. Part of it's post-vis, part of it is the dailies, part of it is uh, unfinished animation that we got from MPC that we just got. And so none of it is, it's all temporary. And by the way, Steve, we're not only carrying 13, 15 video tracks, I'm carrying 21 soundtracks. And I have five one tracks, I have stereo tracks, I have single tracks, I have dialogue tracks. So when all that's together and a few shots come in, we have to adjust everything. <laughs> adjust everything all the time. <laughs> uh, that's tricky. David, how close was uh, when you were spending so much time on Previs, a full year, you said, how much of a template was that to compare to your, your final movie? Some sequences more than others. Like any film, it evolves and changes as as the, the film is shot and, and uh, reshaped and uh, rewritten. Yeah, the kind of the heart of it remained. I think the 
the Spitz fight in the middle of the movie started in previs and, you know, became a pretty good framework where we ended up there. The avalanche was uh, pretty extensively previs and I think ended up, you know, in the ballpark. Um, but a lot of the emotionally driven scenes, you know, the previs was kind of just an approximation. There's no way to know how you're going to block block out or cut a, a scene like that until you get the actors there on set and you work through it on the day. So a lot of that stuff was sort of just placeholders. But what it did afford us was an opportunity to, to almost screen a full sort of cut of the movie before we shot it. And what was nice about that was as more people were being hired on the film or they were casting the film, they were able to show them parts of this previs. And now all of a sudden, everyone's speaking the same language. You know, they understand the intent, you know, it might be an approximation of that intent, but it, everybody's now has a basis for what we're doing in any given scene or sequence. So I think it was really helpful in that regard. I'll be back in a moment with more of my discussion with William Hoy and David Heinz. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing, and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage. Backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. And now back to my discussion with David Heinz and William Hoy. Structurally, because you have the ability to kind of see the whole movie play out, which is very rare unless you're doing an animated film, were story decisions made at that point as you were doing that that wouldn't have been made in a film in in the same way? I would say yes, I, I think so. I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking about uh, uh, the sledding montage, for example, where Buck is learning to uh, become a sled dog. Because we had uh, conceived that as a montage in previous form, when we went to shoot it, they just picked up sort of a lot of little pieces in there if you can imagine it wasn't so they weren't shot as full scenes that we then trimmed down and over time honed into this one montage it really set out to be a montage so pro lifting buck over the cliff for example there's only there are only like two setups there they knew it was just going to be a quick shot or two and then we were into the next thing so in that regard i think it was helpful as well to know okay well we need a sequence where buck becomes a sled dog but we need to do that rather efficiently let's look at doing this as a montage and then once we kind of got it close in previous form and felt like that was going to work now they know to go shoot it they only have to get little pieces in and out they don't have to get full scenes there um at the end um and i don't want to give away any of the movie but there's obviously a villain in the movie <laughs> i think we can give away that much 
um, there's a bad guy and he, the Harrison Ford character goes away with Buck. They go off into the wilderness and the there's quite a while with them off in the wilderness before the bad guy comes back. Was there any uh, thought or had there been other scenes where, hey, we need to track the bad guy um, getting closer or was it just a thought like, no, we want to be with the, with the dog, we want to be with, with Harrison and we're not going to worry about the bad guy until he shows up? I think the only scene that was missing was the bad guy finds the canoe that's been wrecked and we know he's on the trail but I think in that area where Buck and Thornton go on this journey together, the feeling was that we wanted to concentrate on this is their adventure of a lifetime. So that it broke that rhythm up of, of them enjoying the wilderness together. And then there's an, another introduction there to the white wolf. So what do you give your time to? And the feeling was that we didn't need the bad guy to track him because he wasn't really giving us any more. What we did get more of was ultimately we did feel that Buck and Thornton had this adventure of a lifetime and that Buck did, did find his wild self at this time. To concentrate on that was the right thing to do. Yeah, and to piggyback on that real quick, Steve, that canoe scene, finding the canoe scene that Bill's talking about, what we did is when we went to preview, we purposefully left that scene out, knowing that if the audience feedback came back as, you know, where, where did this guy come from? He just came out of nowhere. We knew we had that scene to put back in, but we thought we would test it without and see if the audience went with it, and it seems like they did. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea that, I'd heard from other people too that when you test something, uh, you almost want to test it out instead of testing it in. Because if you test it in, then you're it's in. Right? <laughs> but if you test it out, you can always add it later. It, but it's it's hard to test something if you cut it in and then you're like, well, what if we cut out the scene? The audience has no way of knowing how they'd feel if the scene gets cut cut out. The, their only comment would be. It's too long. <laughs> so I can't tell you, but it just felt long. Okay. Right. So then you're stuck. <laughs> and, and I've even heard that with, uh, uh, with editors just screening for a director. Hey, I'm going to try cutting this out and seeing if the director, one, kind of even notices, which, you know, the directors are pretty invested, so they're going to notice. But you, you can cut things out and see how they're going to play instead of maybe asking to cut it out and then doing it. Have you guys tried either one of those tactics? I actually took something out on, I think it was on Call of the Wild. I dropped it out. I go, look, I, I couldn't get a hold of the director. And I said, he's coming in to look at, I just drop it out because I feel like it should be out. So he watched it and he goes, oh, that's, that's good. I like that. And did you miss anything? He goes, no, no. I took this out. He goes, took that out. <laughs> <laughs> but you liked it. <laughs> But I'm, I'm still, to this day, I'm surprised that certain parts of the picture, when you take things out, even scenes that I really love, the acting and the setting, the, you think that you're getting so much out of the scene and you take it out, things come together and this, the bigger aspect of the movie works so much better and it's a sacrifice. You know, you're sacrificing 
this beautiful scene and and you don't want to lose it and it's going to go into the dvd and the people can watch it but it is one of those things where i to this day i'm surprised i mean pop something out and go wow look at that unbelievable yeah Yeah. have either one of you guys done one of those slash and burn things where you cut like to the bone to realize oh you know i definitely cut too far but now at least you know what's critical or maybe some interesting scenes came together and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool that with that scene missing, these two scenes go together. We have done that on, on different pictures. And uh, yes, it was, it was like that, that you, you find there it really works well in certain places and then someplace, no, I really missed that. So we, we actually have to put that back in. With some directors that we start fat and then we get down, get down. And then at some point we go, let's just cut this right down to the bone and see just internally, like nobody should see this, but us, it's an exercise for us. So we'll do that. And said, no, we, we missed that. We want that back in. And, but that moment really worked. What did we miss there? Well, we lost this, some important information. So let's see how we can put that important information or a glimpse of what that idea was somewhere else. And it could be an ADR line. It could be just a shot that was that scene. We don't know until you experiment and play and see what you actually can lose to make the whole of it better. One example, Steve, from um, Call of the Wild where we did that is after Buck met the white wolf, we had a really beautiful sequence where Buck was taken to the wolf den for the first time and was kind of introduced to the entire pack of wolves. And we, at a certain point, uh, tried to just lift that out. I thought there would be no way we could live without that sequence. Um, And I just thought it was going to be such a beautiful sequence. I wasn't ready to lose it. But sure enough, that was one of those lifts where as soon as we pulled it out, everything else just came together around it. But to Bill's point, we knew there were we knew there were a couple little moments from there that we really wanted. We wanted to establish the wolf's den and the tree where they lived, for example. So we took two or three shots from the start of that scene and we put them into the end of a montage that comes later in the movie. And so we we retained that beautiful establishing. But sure enough, when we lifted that scene right out, everything around it just seemed together beautifully. It's one of those moments. It's kind of like in basketball, you see a guy take a crazy shot. It's like, no, 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 no. And then it goes in. You're like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I want to get back to the, David, the story things with having a movie that you've previs so much. Did the movie uh, stay the same much more than a typical movie? Like, you know, a lot of movies, you shoot them and you don't really know how they're going to go together until you put them together and then you're like, oh, now this scene's got to go over here and we're going to cut this scene out. But with something previsd so much, did less of that happen? I don't know that less of that happened, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I think, but but I think there were some um, story problems that we solved early on, which proved to be really helpful later. But 
but yeah, I mean, I, I think like anything, you, you do as much meticulous planning as you can. And then once it's filmed and, and you get footage back, the, the film starts becoming what it's going to be and, and uh, evolves over time. Especially a film like this, where there are large sections of the third act that are entirely CG. We could sort of write and rewrite those right up until we had to finish them with the animators. So it was absolutely an evolution. I think the overall structure of the movie is set largely by the book anyway. So, and with the book, the source material being such a classic, there would be no, no great reason to deviate much from that anyway. Did both of you guys read the book or did you intentionally stay away from reading the book? I did read most of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Usually worked on a few movies that were adopted from books and there are so many different characters. There's so many different ideas. When people read books, and I know for myself that I have ideas that I love about the book and sometimes might get tied to it. So I remember the first picture I worked on was based on a book. I went out and read the book and I studied it. And then when I read the script, I go, wait a minute, this is not even close to the book. I mean, so you have to divorce yourself from the book. And you know, it wasn't out of laziness that I didn't read the book. I wanted to revisit it just to get the feel of it. But to follow it, the book is pretty brutal. And uh, so we weren't making that movie. But the actual spirit of the book, I think we're adhering to. So I think that's important. Call of Wild was, at least when I went to school, required reading. Um, so I had read it in school, but I hadn't picked it up um, since I was a kid. So I reread it before I started on the project. And and I was reminded of just how sort of vicious and brutal brutal the book is. Um, It's amazing and it's a classic. But when but rereading it, I was reminded of just how sort of intense it was. And and I think the the intention all along was to try to to make a a film that was palatable for families. And uh, I think they were aiming for a PG all along. So we knew right away that, yeah, to Bill's point, we were needing to adapt the spirit of the book um, more so than the moment to moment uh, intensity of it. So it sounds like you've definitely got challenges in a film with so much CGI. Are there any advantages editorially? As difficult as it is, on us personally to work on fully animated movies like this or fully CG movies when you have a CG animal. We, I feel like I'm part of the storytelling process that when we're, we have the, the edit in front of us that we can actually talk with the director, the sound people. And so it feels like we are more collaborative even more collaborative than we are. It feels that way. I, I, I feel pretty collaborative on just straight storytelling movies, but this way it feels like you can actually be on a set and go, hey, you know what, let's move the camera over here or let's closer here or let's, be, let's have the camera moving in this shot. So I think you know, we can suggest those things and we can show it uh, rudimentarily on our habits and, and just give them a, a blueprint to go on and if nothing else stir ideas and then say look I have an idea for this because you know we we're, we're having a problem with this section of the movie 
let's try this. Well, I don't know what you mean. Well, let me just lay something out. You can take a look at this. And so then that germ of an idea becomes a bigger thing. So it feels very collaborative that way. It feels like I'm really like deeply involved in the movie. So that's the part of it that I do enjoy very much. Being a part of the process so early is such a rarity and a really a, a great opportunity for an editor to weigh in early on the storytelling. I ended up shooting virtual camera on a lot of scenes that became previous scenes that then became the basis for how we were uh, covering and filming sequences uh, in the finished film. Um, so in that regard, it, it was a very, very rewarding process to, as Bill's saying, you know, you, you have ideas, you try them, you, you run them for a cut, you run them for an audience, they work. There's something really, really gratifying about that. And being involved um, so deeply in the storytelling is, uh, it's a dream come true. It's, it's, it's what I love to do. So it was a joy. You, you mentioned a virtual camera. Can you describe the technology of what you were, what you were doing with the virtual camera? Was it an actual, like, running a camera inside of a virtual space? Essentially, yeah. Uh, the way we created a lot of the previs or scenes that had humans in them is we brought in human actors and we put them in motion capture suits. Uh, Chris Sanders, our director, was then able to block out scenes uh, with the actors. Uh, that motion was captured, put into a, a previs environment. So now we had the movement um, of the actors and the blocking that Chris had set up for any given scene, but we didn't have any camera angles. So within that environment, we then needed to take a virtual camera, which is really just sort of a handheld, um, not much bigger than an iPad, a handheld device where you go in and you can set camera angles on any given piece of animation. So it was from those angles then that I would get dailies back in previous form and cut those together. And it was great because I would cut something together and I'd say, you know, I think we need a little bit, uh, we need another shot here, a little bit more coverage, whatever the case may be. And we were able to go back with that virtual camera and just shoot what we needed. So that was very gratifying. The, the motion capture stage was right next to my cutting room in the previous phase of the movie. When uh, William was talking about having input, I was thinking, uh, you know, on a typical shot film, if, if you say something to me and I react... And then I think for a minute and then either look away or have some kind of reaction. The editor has no control over that. But you guys could actually say, I want the pacing inside of the shot to change. You know, I want the reaction to be quicker from the realization to the dropping of the face or the looking up or whatever. Stuff could actually change interior to the shot. Certainly we take physical shots and put them in places that that wasn't what it was intended for and that's how we would make it work and there's a little tricks to manipulate the frame even even if it's shot but uh, the freedom of doing it with cg characters or even more even on apes you know you you can take the head and exactly look in the other way and and have the eye line be correct and so, you know, is this, this kind of a three-dimensional chest? Then you can actually get your head around doing something like Bot 2. 
And David, when you were working on the previs, how much audio stuff did you have? Do you have a lot of dogs whining and barking? And we had a full sort of soundtrack. It was pretty, you know, rough and very, very temp. But we had sound effects and music in uh, for the entire film. We had a music editor, Ted Kaplan, who came on and helped us with the previs. So the, the previs was very much a viewable early cut of the movie. What do you guys think about doing that? on a regular non-CGI movie. What would you think of that concept of trying to previs a, a, a straight shot movie that heavily? Good or bad or a waste of time? I think it's a waste of time because you're in, in a virtual world, you can do all these different things. And, but once you get on a physical set and you actually have to shoot it, it becomes a different thing. So, I mean, we have had scenes in a lot of movies that were previous just so that production designers, stunt people, everybody could get on the same page about, okay, the camera's going to be here and this is the type of shot I want. So when we get the actual dailies back from a scene that had been completely previous, you know, well, it doesn't look anything like it. So, but that's, in, and I'm working with a director that he doesn't like previous, but he knows the value of it because it's like a, a more detailed storyboard, if you will. But to have a previs of your characters, I mean, you hire somebody like Harrison Ford, he, Harrison Ford's not going to do that. <laughs> and because he has this idea of, you know, where I should be, what my blocking would be, because he's a very accomplished actor and he's, he's, he, he did a, he's a very fine actor in our movie too, that... But that's what he brings to it. So those are the kind of things that you can you can spend a lot of money and time prevising it, and you would have to have the director there too. So he would have to direct the previs and then go in and direct the actual physical shots. So it's in 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 a sense it's a waste of time. I mean, but it's not a waste of time if it's a big stunt scene that we need to everybody need to be visualized or or even like what what equipment do the camera people need. Yeah, just curious. A thought example, just something to think about. <laughs> a thought experiment. A thought experiment. That's the word I was looking for. That's right. <laughs> I saw an episode of This Guy Edits with Dr. Karen Perlman, who teaches film, and she makes all of her students pre-shoot their movies and edit them together to see what the story problems are going to be and uh, and think, oh, I see. If I did the blocking different, uh, that makes this character more central. And so you learn things when you're shooting cheaply that you would then hopefully not repeat when you're filming with a big crew. Yeah, I think if, if you want to do that, you should take your iPhone and get your friends and, and shoot it and block it out. So it'd be a lot quicker and, and you wouldn't have to just go to all that time and expense and you would actually have uh, you know movement and you could actually see if it's going to work or not. And you would actually be on a, at least the blocking would be on the same plane as a physical set. So there might be a, might be a, you think there might be a value in doing that if you shot it instead of pre-vised it in a computer? I do think so. I mean, even from what I know in some of the movies that I've worked on, that the, the actor got his actor friends together and they, they walked through almost the entire movie so that he understood what and how he was going to shoot it so that he actually had it blocked in his head already that, you know, okay, I, I want to be here because when he confronts this person, it's, I want to be here. And so he has it now blocked out. 
And even though you know phones didn't exist at, at that time, he had a really good idea, and it gave him it, it just it just made him more prepared when he got on the set. Is this going to work or not? Because you get on the physical set and you, you tell the actor go from here. Ooh, that's not going to work, is it? <laughs> and so now you're stuck. Or you get on this, you get on the set and go, well, that set is not anything like I imagine what it's going to be. And that's happened to a lot of directors. You go, well, we can't shoot here today. So, but it's it is important to to know going in how you're you're going to shoot something and 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 however you find a way to do it. Fine. I mean, if 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 it becomes so inexpensive that you can do a whole previs and do it virtually, yeah, go ahead. It, if it helps, for sure. I mean, whatever tool that helps you. I, I think as as great as previs is as a tool, and as much as it's evolved in terms of its look, um, there it still has a limitation in terms of performance. So, performance is always going to guide the story, drive the story, and 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 really only actors can bring that um, to the equation. So uh, Previs is a great start, but um, I think this, I think Call of the Wild is the exception to the rule. I don't think uh, Prevising an entire film ahead of time is, is largely helpful to, to many films. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, William Hoy, ACE, and David Heinz. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to check out the previous episodes and make sure to tell a film-making or film-loving friend.